Hey guys, welcome to She Knows Arsenal. My name is Jessica and I'm your host and you can follow me on Twitter at It's Jessenio. On today's show, we're going to be kind of talking about whether or not Arsenal is having an identity crisis. And I just want to kind of start off the conversation talking about the Champions League final where Chelsea Chelsea won, they're champions of Europe. And this kind of my question about identity wraps into that because we had a total meltdown, like as a fan base, I think a lot of people, especially like on Twitter, had a huge meltdown after that. And it was almost like the progress that we we recognized that we had at the end of the season was wiped away because our rivals are doing so much better or they're winning huge trophies and we're kind of celebrating being second best after Christmas and all this type of stuff. And I I, I think for for me, it just felt more like, wow, are we ever going to have that feeling? And my insecurities about our project and where we're going as Arsenal Football Club was really tested in that moment. It really felt like I was really questioning whether I actually believed in the process, in the project, and if I thought we were actually making progress. And I came to the conclusion that I think we are, but it's still inconclusive on whether or not we're going to actually get to the end of this project. I still think that there's a lot of question marks around Arteta, around Adu, what, who's actually in charge? What does an Arsenal team look like? What does an Arteta player look like? And all of those questions kind of came together and made me question like, what is the identity of Arsenal Football Club? And Jim Housen, who watches the show and is cool, we talk on Twitter all the time, sent me a video um, this guy on, on Twitter was, or not on Twitter, on YouTube was talking about the fact that Arsenal have no identity. And I was like, that's it. That's it. That's definitely it. If you know where you're going and you know what you're working towards, then you can feel confident in what you're doing despite other people's success. And that's where my insecurity come came in. And you guys can let me know in the chat box if you feel similarly that maybe the the question marks around Arteta and Adu and what we're actually doing is making us feel insecure about the progress that we've actually made because it really shouldn't bother us that a team that has bought $200 million worth of high quality talent wins the, the, the champions league. It, it shouldn't, it shouldn't phase us, but it did, you know? So we'll talk about whether or not Arsenal is having an identity crisis. You guys let me know in the chat box where you're watching watching from, how you're feeling, if you agree with what I'm saying, all those types of things. And I'm going to go ahead and bring in my guest. I have George here. George, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So talk to me a little bit. I know you're kind of listening backstage and just how, how did you feel after watching Chelsea win the Champions League? I feel like we kind of talked a little bit about it, but just give me kind of like what your overall feeling about seeing your rival win such a prestigious, you know, competition after our season was kind of like one of the worst seasons. How did you feel about that? Yeah, I had two real weird feelings. So one, I didn't like it. It's kind of strange because I know on Twitter, I'm kind of the objective optimist or I try to be, uh, but it didn't feel good. It, It can't. I don't think you can ever debate watching a rival do well as feeling good. So I think that's kind of a fundamental pillar of just fan culture. So that, that totally is something I kind of aligned with. And then but when I took a step back, I really saw a lot of similarities to the coach and that arrival of how they got to that place. 
with our process even last year. And I drew a huge amount of similarities that I'm hoping we can kind of point out, tease out and kind of see whether or not this process that we're going on is aligned. And, you know, it all comes down to me about managing expectations and being realistic about the floor of each respective team that you're going towards. Because I think some of the process that we're seeing with the rivals and Chelsea specifically is a lot more similar than people think. Um, but the floors of these teams are very different. And so that trajectory and where you can reach is going to be very different. It's kind of like comparing apples to oranges a little bit. I think, you know, that the same narrative continues to to pop up over and over and over again, especially since Tuchel has come in. Look at a team that was in mid-table, come in December, sack their, you know, their um, their legend, Frank Lampard, brought in a world-class manager, and boom, they're in the top four. They're doing great. They're doing this. They're doing that. And now they've won the Champions League. We were in the, kind of a similar position, although we were a lot lower, about 15th. We kept Arteta, and we got up to eighth. And I just feel like that lacks so much context. You know, do you agree with that? Completely. I mean, I think if we were to take a step back and you really look ultimately on a 38 game season, which, by the way, is still the biggest metric of success. I kind of I, I did put this tweet out a couple of days ago where I said, you know, off the back of knockout competitions, it's very difficult to make any legacy arguments. And what I really wanted to mean by that is a season metric is still the best, most objective pattern of play throughout the season. And removing context, we were six points away. Um, regardless of how we slice it, no matter how bad we may be and how much you may be in or out on the manager or on the squad, we were six points away. That's the first, I guess, number-wise I, I would look at. Um, and now, additionally, I think when you go dwell a little bit deeper, I've actually used this argument on Twitter, is, and let's say that we sacked Arteta around the same time that we all were really upset, which I would argue is around November, December, which ironically is Boxing Day. And I would like to take out the name Arteta and just look at the numbers that we produced. And I wonder if we had done a manager and let's put in Gallardo, let's just put a name and let's see the numbers. Would everybody be speaking the same tune? Because objectively we were the second best team in the league since that point. If we had switched managers, we had the bet, the second best goal difference. We had the second best goals conceded uh, goal differential. If you want to look at statistics on shot creating actions, we're up there. So when I look at the pure numbers in that sense, and I look at that path, it becomes really difficult for me not to see an improvement or a change when ironically, that was the time when the team had the same profiles as its competitors. And I make that really clear as a delineation because I think I've said it before, it's not like we chose not to pick these players. They were unfit, they just weren't available. So when you have that, and I compare the two, you actually beat Tuchel. If we do actually wanna do a pure numbers base-to-base, -base, you know, forget your your feelings on the two managers. He had a better goal difference. He had a better number total. He beat him in every statistical metric. Um, and of course, that removes context, and, and I'm not saying that we're better, uh, but it does show a process, at least in my mind. If you're looking and you're, and you're lost right now, it certainly shows on a larger scale, not just four or five games of a knockout competition, that process for me. It's so funny because there was a, a video that was kind of going around where somebody was like, wow, so for Tuchel, it matters that when he came in, he did this and he was the second best since da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But for Arteta, it doesn't matter because there was like, a, you know, a journalist or something saying like since this particular time, which it was, wasn't even the same amount of time as Arteta. 
it was like a smaller amount of time where they they actually took away the end of the season where they were starting to fall away a little bit and they were starting to struggle. And oh, from this time to this time, small sample size, they were the best team. They were second best. He had the most points. He had this. And I'm just like, I just think it's it's true when you take away the, the name and if you were to give it to somebody else, it would seem um, impressive. It would seem impressive. I mean, we won our last five games and regardless to if you care about the competition or not, or whether or not we were actually um, competing for anything, which we were up until the very end, we were, that's, that's good. That's what we're looking for. And for anybody who's like, well, it was Sheffield, it was Newcastle. Those are the teams that we need to be beating you guys. That that's how you get into the champions league spots. You don't actually have to beat Manchester city twice, Manchester United twice, Liverpool twice. You have to be able to beat Newcastle twice, Wolves twice, these teams. So for me, that that was a, a definite positive. But let's stay a little bit more macro and talk about identity. Mm-hmm. What is the identity of this club? You know, starting off like as an Arsenal fan, like for me, a lot of us started watching. Well, not a lot of us. I won't I won't make exceptions. But for me, Arsene Wenger years, I really knew who we were. Like it was very clear who we were. It was a very clear ethos. We would bring in under the radar signings and make them into stars, you know, like literal, like some, some of the players that we brought in were like absolute nobodies or even rejects from other clubs like Bergkamp and, and Thierry Henry. They were not stars before they got to Arsenal. They were actually labeled flops in Serie A and came to the Premier League and did well with Arsenal. So the recruitment was always on, on point. Our Arsene's recruitment was impeccable over those years. So that was a big part of the fabric of our club and, and his ability, sorry, to coach up as well. Yeah. I think that really gets underrated where it's not even just the idea of that, but it, it's the idea of turning players that weren't just flops, but bonafide generational superstars. And like, I, I don't know if people really go back in their history, but, you know, Vieira and even Henri, I don't know if people understand the context of the history at that point. Like when you do look at Henri, he was a struggling left winger in Syria. So it, it was not really... Um, you know, th- this bonafide generational striker that we saw and came to love, you know, Anelka, um, Vieira, the list is it is insane. You know, um, I forget even George Weah at Monaco. Like, if you want to go even deeper, the list of coaching up. And and I, and I think this is probably one of the tools that maybe we, we've lost in recent years, the idea to coach up assets, because we're not smart <laughs> in our business. We really just aren't. There's no way to kind of go about that, you know, and I don't defend that. We're just not smart. Um, so, so for us, we look for those things and we're like, okay, I need some kind of, you know, hope here. Are, are, are we able to, um, you know, coach up these like really poor business decisions? Um, can we recover something? Um, yeah. And I think that's part of the, um, like the strain though, because what, what we're seeing here is we're seeing things that just aren't smart. And we as fans can see them. And we're having an issue with that because we know that we don't have the financial capability to get out of that hole. So I think that like dichotomy is like a fundamental flaw in our fabric. It's not even just us as fans, but us as Arsenal fans. We've never been that club. And we don't, I don't think we really truly want to do it that way. I don't want to speak for anybody, but if I'm really being honest, the ethos of this club is hard work and kind of getting yourself to the platform without external stimuli. It's always been the case. If you go through the history, through George Graham, through our biggest successes, and even Arson, that's been the key. Um, but yeah, 
not selling your soul was a big thing. Arson talked about that all the time that we have to keep our, you know, our, um, our philosophy and what we believe has to always be at the forefront. And we can't just throw that away, you know, because we want to be able to compete with the big boys. And I think Arson tried really, really hard to continue on with that. And I think sometimes almost to the detriment of our results, but ultimately you can never really say that he veered away from that. The club did, but maybe not arson. Those are two different things. But when we talk about identity, it's so it's so funny to me that we're so like complimentary of Lester for all the things that they do. They're they're doing Bertrand. things that we used to do. They they're doing <laughs> things that we used to do. Like you see what I'm saying? Like Lester, like untapped talent. Mm-hmm. players that you probably would have never looked at lower leagues uh Ian Nacho, you could probably label him as almost like a flop at man city brought him in made him into something and um academy players things like that and just taking time and building up and always kind of being in and around like fourth place like now they're kind of always in and around that area and that's kind of how we used to be so when people are like look at lester we used to be lester we just went from being smart to being super dumb like you said so you yeah. have to figure out how to become smart again i guess yes <laughs> yes a little education is needed on all fronts <laughs> so um but so when we also talk about identity it's also important mm-hmm. like you know i was thinking about this earlier this morning when i was we were kind of talking on Twitter, not really with you, but like other people about AC Milan and, mm-hmm. and Ivan Gazidis and, you know, t- kind of talking about him. But I was thinking to myself, like for, for Arsenal with the structure of what we're trying to do now, is it important to make sure that the identity of the club is something that is constructed by the ownership, the executives and ADU versus Arteta? You know, should the identity of the club be so heavily wrapped up in a manager versus the club because I think that was an issue is that our identity really fell apart when Arson left. What is your temperature on the identity of the club being a manager focused thing or something that the club built outside of a manager? So when the manager leaves, we can pivot without having to destroy everything and, and build it back up. So I, I think that's a really interesting question. It comes down to like the head coach versus manager debacle that like we, we've been going back and forth. And, and I think we have pro and cons of both um, working. So I think that's really important to kind of, kind of say where um, you have the Chelsea model, which is really the head coach, not the manager type, and you've got success. Now, we've also got that not working in another big club, cough, cough, Manchester United. And so when you look at whether something can work or not, I think it's really important to see how it aligns with the culture of that club. And I make that point because I feel that Manchester United have never actually been that head coach or a manager type. They've been a manager type. It's, it's Fergie, just like us with Arsene, we're used to that type of culture. And that's what brought our clubs the most success in their respective histories. Now, Chelsea have never been like that. So for them, it works. It's not to say that it doesn't work. But I think what's really clear for me, at least, is you got to decide whether or not this person that you're in giving the power to in a manager sense is A, able to handle it, but also B, you see the potential in him doing things beyond just coaching. And so that's when it becomes dangerous if you give that power to somebody who doesn't have the capability. And of course, it's a little bit of a leap of faith in either sense, but you also don't know this with a head coach, you know, and this is what I try to tell people, like we've seen with head coaches for ourselves and not working between, you know, Unai 
And, you know, e even with Freddie, who like I love and, you know, he did an amazing job in the academy. But when, when he did take the step up and I don't blame him particularly, but we see examples, I guess my point is, of both not working. But ultimately, the best synergy is when that club's history follows that philosophy consistently. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with that. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, if they gave Arteta too much, like too much in the beginning, like... I think he wants to be that arson, you know, that pep type figure. And he doesn't necessarily maybe have the experience for it. But when we always say show up how you want to be kind of like received, you know, so if mm -hmm. he wants to be received as that person, he has to act like it, even without the experience. But I think if we had had stronger leadership, maybe there would have been somebody that could have said, like, look, we're, we want you to be that long term, but maybe not so right at the beginning. Because we're now we're so wrapped up in Arteta that maybe he just seems like he's he's almost drowning in the job where I kind of just want him to be a coach, you know, and I don't know if we're building the identity around Arteta around something that maybe Adu and Vinai have concocted. I'm not sure because it's it's still inconclusive and I'm not really sure about the structure of Arsenal, like who's actually in charge and who's not and what is Adu's role, because for me, the director of football should be the person kind of deciding what the playing style is going to be and all that kind of stuff. And then the coach coaches that it seems like Arteta and Adu are kind of doing the job together and Vinay's kind of there, you know, how do you kind of feel about Adu's role and Arteta's role and how they're kind of intertwined? Do you think it should be more separate? Do you think that's hurting us? Or do you think it's okay for the two of them to kind of be working so closely together when maybe it'd be easier if they just had definitive roles and just did their own thing? I think the definitive roles is for us as fans to feel good, not so much in an actual structure. Um, okay. So what I, what I guess I mean by that is, is I look to the academy as really a blueprint because, and I've said this before, we have done this rip the gutter out with the academy and it's been overseen by Per Mertesacker and we've actually seen the results and the output from that process. And there's tons of similarities with what we're doing in the first team exactly here. Now, on in terms of Edu's competency, I'm not a fan of the guy personally. I, I don't know whether or not he's the greatest for the job, but in terms of whether or not Arteta or the coach or manager, should he be setting the philosophy as opposed to receiving it from above? I am a big fan of that because I'm, I'm, I'm ultimately a big believer that the head coach knows best, regardless of what he needs and where he needs to go. And I don't want to inhibit that you know, at, at the expense of an overall structure change. And so it really comes down to, again, are you a head coach or are you a manager? And if you want him to be a manager, you know, and you see that as beneficial, then he has to dictate the transfer policy. Otherwise, you get a Mourinho situation where you have somebody who needs the control, isn't given it, and then it falls apart through, I don't think, really the fault of his own. You know what you're getting into when you hire this type of manager. And, and even with Arteta, like he was doing a lot of things that weren't head coach responsibilities from the very get-go, asking the players to take a pay cut. Like these were leadership qualities that were not in his job description as a head coach. So when I evaluate, did it come too soon? Did it not? In my mind, it did publicly, but not internally. Absolutely not. He's been doing it for uh, months. And since he came in, he really dictated the culture change that we wanted to see, whether that was handling of Mesut, you know, whether that was handling pay cuts, COVID, you know, our response to those things publicly. That was all Arteta and it's well documented. So for me, leadership wise, he was definitely up to the task. Now, publicly, 
I don't think our fans are nuanced enough, I'll be honest, to see that difference because they do seem to want a one pill fix all or one person to blame. And what I mean by that is we're very uh, classically trained as fans that it's just one person that's causing these troubles. You know, it's one person. If you get rid of that one person, that one scout, you know, we're going to be back to the top again. And I don't think it's that um, simple. It rarely is. It's much more complicated. So when I look at the youth with Per and what he did, um, Again, he employed somebody that set a way of playing with Marcel Lucasen. And I've kind of spoken about him in the past and some of my other stuff, but we have set a way of playing in the academy. He then gutted the academy scouts, and then he employed only a couple through, again, Nolan Partners. And then in the end, now what we're seeing is a change in youth philosophy that I think everyone can identify with. We're actually recruiting specific profiles here to a specific gap in the first team. And I use this as an example because we're seeing this in the first team. So what happened? COVID prevented us from taking this gut approach last summer. It really did financially. But we've seen the gutting of the scouts, which everyone freaked out about. But guys, we did this like in 2018, literally two years ago. And by the way, Nolan Partners, who did recruit our biggest executives at the time, Marcel Lucassen, they're doing the same for us now. Like this isn't a change, you know, FSG use Nolan partners as well. I don't know if that's well documented for people, but you know, this isn't like a hearsay flippant appointment. You know, th this is a process that we've done before. It succeeded in the academy and we're just seeing it play out now that unfortunately was delayed from a once in a lifetime COVID event. I really believe that where I think a lot of plans that actually we're seeing now have delayed a year. So, I really expected these growing pains going into this season. I actually oddly wasn't as optimistic as the general fan base. I predicted eighth um, and, and something so along I. those. Yeah, like I, I was really confused with what we ended up doing, not the hope. So I think that was important, right? Um, how do I manage expectations from what I see? And I think that gap directly correlates with how upset you are with Chelsea. And I think just to bring it back there in this long rant, I really think though, how you felt at the start of the season and then that gap to where we are is a direct correlation about how upset you're going to be watching your rivals success or not because you felt that they were either lower than your expectations of where they were so you felt that gap was maybe larger in my opinion i think people forget like other teams get to improve too you guys forget that like we're not the only team that's going to go out to the transfer window and get players like the teams that are in and around us and right below us are going to do it too. So you can't always just look and see like, okay, well, we have this team. And this is also comes with our team on paper and our team in real life are two completely different teams. You know, mm -hmm. just because we spent a certain amount of money on them, they come with a certain amount of clout, they have a name. It's not the same as what they can produce on the field because that's just how it goes. So I agree with you. My expectations for this season were somewhere between 8th to 10th. Because I knew without that creative player, without that creative outlet, we were going to suffer. I knew it because we don't have a lot of creativity in the team. We just don't. And Thomas and Gabrielle just weren't enough. In my opinion, I thought it was going to improve us. But because other teams, I've seen them already improving the year prior. So we have to look behind us. We have to look in front of us and realize that the gap is a lot bigger. You know, even with Chelsea, it's like, well, Chelsea's not that much. Yes, they are. They have players that would get in our team like their backups would do that. They, they bought a 72 million pound <laughs> replacement for Mason Mount and didn't need it. But like 
the the differences are huge. And you know what? One thing just to bounce off that, Jess, you know, Thomas Partey was injured. And and the reason I'm bringing this up is because we all remember what happened with Lacazette after his 18-19 season when he missed a preseason with a sprain. He was horrific that season. And and so I knew medically when he came in without a preseason, you've got to remove Thomas's impact on the team from your projections of how great this team is going to be. Because we didn't have him. He was not healthy at the beginning. So, um, yeah, I really only looked at Gabrielle as the only inclusion in my mind. And I was like, yeah, that's not enough. Um, we're we're going to maybe improve the defense, which we did. <laughs> you know, um, it, it worked. Um, but, again, we didn't do enough at all. And, and I'm sure we'll get into, like, the specifics of philosophy. Because, you know what, I, I do see a philosophy. I see a common thread. And, you know, those five games that you mentioned – I see a lot of similarities with when he took over. Like there is a really clear plan that I see in place. And even when you analyze his selections, so, you know, what does Gabrielle and Partey represent? Because those were clearly his signings. You know, I don't think there's any confusion. Is, is that Edu? Is that Arteta? No, they're, they're very clearly Arteta players. And so you need to analyze what are those two players like? And that gives you a peek into his window, into his mind about what he feels is important. Let's roll into that because that was definitely like where I was going. That was my next question. Sorry, Bella's barking. She always does this while we're recording. (laughs) Okay, so what is an Arteta player? That's kind of a question that's been going through my mind for the last couple of days. Like you have Thomas Party and you have Gabrielle. Let's not even talk about William. That was something else. But those players and Odegaard, you probably can look at him as well and say, what do these players have in common and what can we take from that and say that this is the direction that we're going to move into? Do you want to expand on that a little bit, George? Yeah, hundred percent. So let, let's look at, you know, gap across the three, they're ball carrying progressors. So what do I mean by that? They're on the ball able to carry both short and then I would maybe lack Odegaard on longer distances, to be honest with you as a player. It was one of my fears, actually, of him going in. But regardless, the, the theme of a ball carrying progressor is common. And actually what you see that addresses it in every single third of the pitch. So Gabrielle in defense, Partey in the midfield, and Odegaard in the final third. Now, maybe it wasn't our plan A, but that was the philosophy. Now, another thing is they're all absolutely elite over the first five yards. So Gabrielle, um, you know, Partey, and even Odegaard to an extent, when you look at the counterpress, these players are immensely quick over the first five yards. Now, I don't think I think they struggle in longer distances with Odegaard, but that's another thing. When you look at Gabrielle and Partey, these are dual monsters. So when you look at an Arteta player, he wants an athlete. He wants somebody that can go long or short running wise, and he wants somebody that can carry the ball. Now, another thing is he wants somebody that's adaptable to different positions. So Partey, we don't even know if he's best as a six or an eight. I have my subjective opinion on it, but you know, we don't really know where he's best, but that's because he can solve multiple problems on the pitch. Gabriel, by the way, is the exact same thing. Yes, he's a left center back, but he can be in the middle of a three. You know, he can kind of step into midfield. Again, these are malleable players that you don't need a sub to change. So when I look at like the crux of what an Arteta player is, I can kind of summarize it in three or four points. Tactically versatile, an athlete who is a monster in 1v1 duels, and somebody who is elite at carrying the ball. Those are three major traits that, whether it's Odegaard, Partey, or Gabrielle, are consistent in every single one of them. Now, 
ball competency and the like, technical security is different between the two. You know, I think Gabrielle struggles short and medium range. Like we can get into the minutia, but those traits that I listed above are a clear thread between every single one of those players really that you cited. So I think that's the plan. And then you need to carry that into like the gaps on the pitch. So where do we see our gaps, whether it's at right back, whether it's at attacking midfield, wherever you want to go, your player, when you're looking at these targets, do they hit those criteria? Are they an athlete? Are they versatile? Can they play more than just the outlet right back role? You know, because that's important to Arteta. And I think I just want to get away from this. Oh, it's a 4-3-3. We have to be a 4-3-3. It's FIFA. Like, it, there's no way that we can change because I hate to break it to everybody and I hate to be a, an annoying geek, but we change formations very regularly um, mid-game. So, uh, yeah, I think those are the major traits on a player-specific standpoint. Yeah, for sure. Like, I I think one thing that Adu did say in a um, in a interview I think before the season started about Thomas Party and Gabrielle that they were going to help us with our physicality profile um for a long time we've been this team you know we've been this team that was unable to be a part of the battle you know and football to a certain extent is that you know teams that cannot cope with you technically will try to beat you up to even out the playing ground and I always thought that that was a real failing of our teams kind of towards the end of Arson's reign was just they, the technical quality had fallen off and then the physicality wasn't there. So if we can look at it from the standpoint of like, they're bringing in athletes and they're bringing in people that can be a part of the physical battle, but they're also like technically decent, technically good. Thomas being excellent and Gabrielle probably being somewhere on like moderate. That's good. That's good to me. Like that is something that I can get behind. And if we continue to recruit, these types of players, then we know that that's actually what Arteta wants to go after. Well, let's talk a little bit about the kind of his, he talked about his philosophy early when he came in and he said he wanted to have possession, make sure that the other team can attack you by having possession, really attacking style and, and those types of things. And I, I feel like we haven't seen the, that come to fruition in, to a, not to a point where people can say like, that's the way that we play. There's a lot of people that still think that we're overly defensive. I would say that we just haven't figured out a way to create chances at volume. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're overly defensive and um, being defensively sound is not necessarily a bad thing if you think about it. So have we seen that type of philosophy in some of the games that we've played maybe towards the end of the season and, um, is his inability to get it at a consistent on a consistent basis more due to the players or is he holding himself back? What are your thoughts? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, so yeah, in terms of the, uh, I mean, yes. So in terms of the philosophy, there absolutely is there. I'll, I'll park that for one second. I want to look at the season because I think it provides you a little bit of a more clear story about how we're going to get there. So when you look at maybe let's block the really poor sense of the season where we didn't have a, a presence between the lines and we really didn't have Thomas Partey until Boxing Day. We saw a really flux of changing between the three at the back system hybrid to this new four and everyone's like i don't see it like why have we changed you know we can't do it well uh, we didn't have any profiles that would get in there and actually fix it anyways but once we did in boxing day there was a very clear four at the back system we saw smith row and we saw him 
prioritize creativity on the wings, right? And what happened is we kind of then morphed into this, oh, we only cross and create our chances that way. Well, unfortunately we didn't have any between the line presence to really do that consistently. And so I would argue from February till about March or the end of March, we then started to create quite a lot of chances, but our forwards were inefficient. And so we've kind of been through this in past pods, you know, that's a criticism throughout really the whole league, but then we lost Shaka, Kieran Tierney, and Bukayo was all injured at the March international break. We then saw him go a little bit weird with Villarreal. He changed systems. And then we arrived back at the end of the season, this last five games, where we started to return to a counter press that we saw pre-lockdown when he first came in. So there's a ton of similarities in what we saw here. So really the big things I'll just outline is we always build in a three at the back. This isn't going to change. It's a non-negotiable. I think we've seen this since Boxing Day, really. That, that's been constant, whether it's, you know, you want to be technical, three, two, or two, three. We build with three at the back. That's common. Whether Shaka goes in or Gabrielle goes wide, that's a common thing. After that, we attack and defend in five channels. This is very clear. So when we're up top, whether you want Lacazette and wing forwards, who cares? I don't want to get too technical, but we have five outlets in the channels all the time. That's very clear. That's so pep. It's not even funny. And that's going to be where we're going to be going long term. So we're going to have a building and a three. And then we're always going to, in the end, go from a two, three, five in midfield. Now, I don't want to get too technical about how we get into there. You know, it can be a two, one or a one, two, who cares? But that's the structure as a broad sense. And so you've got these five defenders and then you've got these five attackers. And how quickly you go from defense to attack is absolutely vital to an athleticism standpoint. Now, that's crucial. So, And this is the philosophy that we're looking to employ. And when we look at a counter press, that's very simple. We've seen it in those last five games. You know, those five channels are solely dependent on you having a trigger, whether that's Odegaard or ESR. We need somebody that's very quick over five yards. So... When you say, I didn't see it at the beginning of the season, well, yeah, he didn't have his profiles. He couldn't really play those things. But in the end, it was very clear in those last five games, that's how we wanted to play. And actually, we even saw Saka go back to left back after Villarreal, which is really something I wanted to see. But that's one of our core principles, right? Like, we need a wide outlet on both sides. We have wingers who act as 10s. They come in, they are involved in the play, and we have a free 10 who wants to go in and help the triangles whenever the ball is. So if the ball's on the left, he'll help that side. If the ball's on the right, he'll help that side. And we need a pivot that helps us do that on both sides. We've only been able to do it on the left or on the right. We can't do it both sides because we don't have a pivot that does it both sides. We only have Thomas. So again, I think that's very clear, the philosophy that he was doing. And actually, if you look back pre-lockdown, he totally did that. You know, um, it's all about wide overloads. We're creating triangles on the wings, okay? And we need a midfield that can actually support the fullbacks to go high and wide. And, and we don't have that on the right. And I think it's very clear that's really where we want to go. Um, but we need a pivot, hence the Basuma link, uh, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like, that makes sense, you know? I actually, yeah, like I... I, I, I predicted we would actually, back in November, I made a tr transfer thesis. And, you know, I preferred Sumare, but you know what? He was my plan B and like I had it. And this is the profile that I really saw. Even when we talk about Awar, who was another one of those heavily pursued targets, you can see the thinking, right? Like how we used Smith Rowe this season, you know, that's where Awar would thrive. 
you know, and chuck Emil back in the center where we need it. And now you're not worrying about Odegaard over long distances. You've got Emil there. And now you've got Awar who can do both of those things. So when you add those pieces to what we're saying, this plan actually becomes a lot more clear, or at least I hope it does for fans, because when you sub in those spots, the plan doesn't change. But what we can do with that plan drastically changes. And it's not just like I use this opinion on Twitter where getting Basuma helps our creativity. And a lot of people said, what? What do you mean? He's not creative. He's got the worst progressive passing, you know, that we've seen. And I go, no, no, you don't understand. The pivot gives us the freedom up top to do what we want. It, it's an indirect way of helping us in ways that you might not see. So really, that's how I see our overall system. And I, I think that's the way that we're going to be going um, in the future. And I hope the targets line up. I mean, Basuma matches with what I'm thinking right now. And, you know, Awar matches with that philosophy as well. So we are still waiting to see. But regardless, again, it could be a 1-2 or a 2-1 in midfield. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Um, it's just you've got to keep those channels alive. This really reminds me so much more of, like, how we played, like you said, post-lockdown. With Ozil and, and these players, it was a lot more pattern play. It was a lot, you know, a lot more like this. So I definitely agree with that. So let's talk a little bit about the flexibility of our tennis formation. You know, some people may see it as a hindrance. Some people may see it as a positive, being able to switch positions and have such versatile players. You know, should you implement something and get it perfect before you do something else? Or should you be a little bit more flexible? What do you think? So again, um, I don't want to be on the fence. I'll give an opinion, but that's a tricky one, right? Like we saw the worst of that in Unai Emery, who was changing consistently. And then you see the, the worst of that in Pep in losing a Champions League final. Um, for me, I really feel as though that you need a consistent philosophy. That's got to be your fundamental truth. And then there's specific game states that you may want to change. So um, let, let's look back in a, as an example. Um, West Ham was a, was a wonderful uh, example of you using a, a traditional 4-3-3 if you'd like. But it's, it's very simple to employ um, at, a, at a game state level. But you still kept these attacking and defending in five channels. You just move some of the pieces around to really fit that philosophy but you have to remember that you're attacking in those five channels and the defense in those five in that five channels is key, right? So I personally feel that you stick with one philosophy. I've always felt, whether that's Wenger, whether that's Ferguson, you look at the most successful teams in history, right? Not just over a season, but dynasties, like true monsters of the game. They had one way of playing consistently and they did it the best. And the Invincibles didn't change five different times they, they had one way of playing and you know it worked pretty well for them you know they went undefeated so uh i personally think having a strong plan a is amazing and look arteta is flexible let's not um kind of kid ourselves we've seen like five different formations in his tenure from like two different months so he has it in him he just prefers not to for i think a case of buy-in and i make that point for for players it's very difficult if you're chopping and changing philosophies and you're not seeing results, which we weren't seeing, to have buy-in from players. Yeah, and I think I think people confuse like, okay, so your philosophy is your formation. It's actually not. You know, mm -hmm. it's the way that you play and your intention when you're going to actually play. You know, so that's like 
you always press, you know, um, you counter press, you know, long balls, you know, different things are like in the t- profile of player that you want. It's you can have the same philosophy and play a four, two, three, one or a three, four, three. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. wouldn't be surprised if Tuchel changed to four at the back and they played relatively the same next season. You know, right. it just depends. Yeah. And you know what? I make this point because I don't think we've really touched on the similarities and I do want to quickly touch on them because mm-hmm. let, let's remove the who's for a minute, because if you look at the process of Chelsea, how did they get to a Champions League and how are we languishing in eighth, so to speak? If George, if the process are so similar, how, how is that the difference? Well, so it comes down to the floor of the team. But fundamentally, you know, Tuchel came in, he recognized really poor compactness in the team and what he did was he packed the middle shock shock uh, who else did we know that did that Arteta um, he then used a three at the back system that was super defensive let's call it what it is but it was compact it was tight I'd have no problem with it and he created chances and you know what he did it to win a knockout competition who again cough cough Arteta did this exact same thing now it's not sustainable long term. I will I will admit that. And you know what? If we actually go back in history, I know some people will say, well, George, what about Man City? Correct. They did it for one season. But if you, if you remember the single pivot in that system, it failed in Europe. And actually, a big reason why it, you know Pep kind of failed in this match, I would argue, is he went back to a single pivot when all season he didn't have that central compactness. Now, I don't think there's precedent in the in the football history for a 4-3-3 being sustainable over multiple seasons. Now, it, it might work in certain areas. Same with the three at the back, and that's the only reason I bring it up. You're looking at two systems right now that historically have never built dynasties over longer than a season or a knockout competition. Every single coach has changed, and so it's not only that I would doubt it, but I think Tuchel is for sure going to a four at the back next season. We've seen this with Arteta. Like I saw this story and, you know, the floors of the teams were just different. So it depends on what competition you were in. We just happened to be in the FA Cup. We were just also 15th. Like we were lower on our floor of the team, but the process is the exact same. Do you worry about like people comparing Arteta to Pep and what kind of happened in the Champions League final, the tinkering, the doing something you never did before, maybe overthinking things and, I look at Arteta and I'm trying to figure out, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm like, are you Pep? Are you Moyes? Are you Arson? What have you, I think he's kind of taken a little bit of each manager that he's been in and around. And you can think of that as a good thing or a bad thing, but do you worry about him having that stubbornness and that overthinkingness that Pep has? And I mean, this is one of his mentors. Does it worry you for the future of Arsenal that he kind of comes from the school of Pep and will do this in big games? Yeah, like, I mean, I I think he has it. And it's definitely a trait. Like, we saw it in Villarreal. So to dismiss that is kind of foolish, in my opinion. Like, he certainly has it. Um, But I I, I think, um, really, when when you look back on it, I think he's his own manager, really. I, I see a lot of Wenger in him, much more so than people may want to actually admit. The idea of no subs to 70th minute, I just want to bring that up. Because... This is actually like a really foolish thing that I've seen where there's a great graphic that I retweeted on my profile that actually shows Arteta's first sub is the same from most people in the league. So this perceived perception that he delays substitutions is just factually not true over the course of a season. He's just in line with every other manager, you know, shock horror. But, um, you know, 
his delaying of certain substitutions in certain situations actually was very banger, very banger. And, um, you know, when you'd actually look back at this three at the back system, he did this in the 2017 FA Cup final. Like it was copy and pasted how we won that FA Cup was directly Wenger. So when I look at people saying he's Pep, I really don't think so. I think he's very Arsene in what he does. Um, now that could be a good and a bad thing because Arsene was very stubborn himself. But um, I, I think ultimately he's going to be his own manager. We look for stories and threads because it makes us feel better from a little bit of a fantasized way of how we view sport. Like, you know, oh, the teacher and the master and the failures of X and Y and Z. I, I really think he's just his own manager. He, he's learned from these great men. He's taken, I agree with you, Jess, he's taken the best of certain things like Moyes and his central compactness. That is prime Everton when he was back there, like being compact off the ball close to each other. You know, that that's prime Moyes. That wasn't Arsene or even... Pep, right? Like we don't associate those with those two managers. And even now we saw it on show, they weren't necessarily close together. So he, he definitely has a little bit of both, but I think he's his own man. And we're going to see this young manager who will make mistakes. He's a phenomenal coach, but a young manager. That means you're going to see blips and bumps in the road, but you're going to see a philosophy that's very different than I think everybody else. It's going to be unique. What do you want to see for next season? Like, from, not from a result standpoint, but from an identity philosophy standpoint, what would you want to see from Arteta in the players next season? Yeah, so I think this season I got my confirmation that I really like the 2-3-5 and this idea of a counterpress. Now I want that done for the entirety of the season, not in specific points. And what I want this season or this summer like kind of off season to do, make that transition permanent so that it no longer becomes a section of the season you know that has to be your plan a that's what i want to see i want you to commit to your philosophy for the entire season and how to do that is unfortunately being very ruthless in the squad which by the way we're seeing like i'm not a huge fan of this shaka sale i'll be honest with you but you cannot doubt its ruthlessness like I'm here saying, blow it up, Mikel, blow it up. And then when he's doing it, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I like my life jacket there. Like, uh, so it's difficult. Um, I think that's my expectations for next season. Build, uh, commit to a philosophy for the entirety of the season. I want you to address the starting 11 holes um, in this off season. That is an expectation. And from a result standpoint, I think those things follow. You know, when, when I see that, and then you can maybe address squad depth the following season. Like that's my developmental plan. So like year one this year, figure out what system is best. The next season, stick to that system that you love. And then the third one, okay, let's complete the squad and really challenge. That's been my personal developmental plan. I think I, I do agree with that. Like from not really a result standpoint, because I know we're all going to be like four, six, all that kind of stuff. But I think for me, it's more about knowing what direction we're going in. And that definitely s starts in the summer. So like you said, ruthlessness, players leaving, players coming in, all that type of stuff. And I'm hoping that the preseason helps him, gives him a chance to implement that with the players that he has. And we'll see how it goes. But talking to you, I think you can see something there that we can build off of. We just have to see it more solidified next season. So what... um what should the target be just from a table standpoint, just randomly, just what do you think? 
Yeah, I know. I do, I do expect top four. I really do. Because what, what I, um, what I'm seeing this summer, what I'm hoping is I want you to address the squad starting 11, right? And, and with that expectations have to rise. I'm not going to sit there and claim, okay, yeah. When you now get your attacking midfielder for the whole season, I'm not going to expect eight, you know, you get a free pass. No, no, that's not how it works. Right. So when he does, uh, you know, get those key pieces, I do expect top four. I think the level of where we go in individual positions on that kind of standpoint depends on the quality of what we're recruiting right here. But if we get an attacking midfielder, you know, in that presence, we get a right back and we get another pivot player. Those are my three main ones. And look, I love a backup left back. And I think you can get those for free or really cheap. So if you get those four, right, which I think are very feasible. Um, yeah, I expect top four with like those additions, you know, that really completes the squad in a starting 11 standpoint. So for me, there's no excuses. I would say my expectations are probably a little bit lower. I'm going to say fifth. Um, I look at those top four spots and think they're a little bit gone already unless something weird happens. And there's always the opportunity for somebody to look like they're going to be up in those top four spaces and to drop a clanger and have a horrible season. We never know. But fifth would be my goal, you know, in around there for, for the whole time too. Not like we're desperately trying to get there towards the end of the season. Like literally we've been there. We're solidified. We know what we're doing all those types of things. But George, this was fun. I really enjoyed this. Um, I love having you on the show. And I think people enjoy your commentary and your analysis and all that type of stuff. Let everybody know where they can find you before I let you go. Yeah, you can find me at George VAFC or also on our pod Ball Over Passion on Twitter at Ball Over Passion. So yeah, you can find us there. And uh, thanks so much. Like I love being here. It's awesome. So you know, I just love that uh, I have a platform to talk a little bit more. So yeah. Of course, no problem. You guys, we'll be back at 10pm with Harry. He didn't actually want to be on this show because it was just too heavy of a topic. So we gave him a different show with some lighter topics. So later on at 10pm with Harry, we'll be talking about Guendouzi going to Marseille, Saka being an unlikely member of the Europa League squad or the Europa Euro squad for England and Odegaard for 60 million. Is it worth it? Is it not? All those types of things. So come back at 10 p.m. Meet us here and um, we'll do more chat box on that one. And make sure you guys like the video, subscribe to the channel, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye, guys. Oh.